all of us, whether we are religious or non-religious, or whether we've been in church since we've been a little kiddo, or we've been in church all our life, or we're just coming back to church, all of us live by faith. Faith is an inescapable as gravity is. It's impossible to live life on this earth without faith. We all live by faith. Think with me for just a moment. If we go to a doctor or a health professional, we exercise faith. Because we trust our bodies to them. When we enter into a business contract, now that's faith, isn't it? Or we sign all those long forms for buying a home. When we plan right now for a summer vacation, we're thinking about getting out of this cold, and one day we're going to have fun, and so we plan ahead, and we sign a reservation. We have faith that that vacation place will be there next summer. When we text our friends about meeting at a coffee shop, we exercise faith, don't we? We exercise faith that our friends will be there and they'll show up. What I want to suggest to you is I watched this movie Gravity and reminded me again that faith, like gravity, is inescapable. Life is impossible without it. We all have faith. We live by faith, just like gravity. And the question for us is not whether we have faith. The question, the big question of our lives, wherever we are in our spiritual life, is what kind of faith do we have? What kind of faith will we live by? Well, in the biblical text that Pastor Clara read for us this morning, we encounter this very important question that transcends the ages and time, and it was certainly a part of the first century world. And that's the question of what kind of faith will we live by? And the question James raises for us is a timeless one and a timely one. And that is, will you and I live a foolish faith, or will we live a wise faith? Now, the language of wisdom is important in the book of James. Biblical scholars often call James the Proverbs of the Old Testament. It is woven with the theme of wisdom to live life wisely and practically. It is very down-to-earth. And so as James introduces us to his ideas and thoughts, center in his mind is what kind of faith will we have? Now, we can't be absolutely certain, but we can have a very strong confidence that the author of this letter is Jesus' younger brother. Now, we know from the Gospel of Mark chapter 6 and other New Testament texts that after Jesus was born in that Bethlehem manger that we celebrate in Advent, that other children were born to Joseph and Mary. And Mark chapter 6 highlights this. So we need to grasp as we enter this book, and as the book begins, it begins recognizing who Jesus is. In chapter 1, verse 1, if you have your Bible open to James, which I encourage you to do, whether it's in front of you or you have it on electronic form, In chapter 1, verse 1, these are striking words when you think about Jesus' younger brother. He introduced himself, he says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think with me for just a moment. James begins his letter affirming who his big brother is. James is a Jewish young lad who is steeped in the great Shema that God has won all his life. And he begins his letter calling Jesus God himself. Chapter 2, he picks up on this again. 
And it describes Jesus, his brother, as what? The Lord of glory in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, I grew up on a large family. I don't know if you uh, grew up in a large family or you've had siblings. But there's one thing about growing up in a family, whether you have two siblings or I had six, is you see them in the good, bad, and ugly, don't you? I mean, you can't hide who you are in a family, especially as a kid growing up. Your brothers and sisters know you inside out. Now, how amazing it is to think that James knew Jesus so well. We often think the Apostle John knew Jesus the closest of all Jesus' disciples, and he certainly did. But we often forget that James, perhaps, on the human earth sort of planet of life, James spent a ton of time with Jesus. James knew Jesus really well. Can you imagine in their home, I always imagine, because I'm sort of warped, can you imagine what it was like for James to live under the shadow of Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, can you imagine Mary saying to James, the young boy, now Jesus picked up his toys, Jesus cleaned his room, Jesus never sassed his mom. I mean, can you imagine what it was like to live under the shadow of a perfect older brother? Have you ever thought about that? And how could Mary not have a favorite son, y'all? I mean, you know, it's Advent. We've got to be gentle with Mary. She's a remarkable person. But if you were Mary, wouldn't you have a favorite son? I would. This is important for us to grasp as we enter this text. Because we hear the close echo of Jesus in James' writing. They are so closely knit, I want you to see it. Jesus not only profoundly transformed James' understanding of who Jesus was, but his teaching. All the way through this book as you read it, and I hope you are reading it through in our Open Here series, in our Open Here journey this year, you will hear the words of Jesus jump from almost every verse Let's go back real quick to Jesus' famous sermon. His most famous sermon is the Sermon on the Mount, right? I think we'd say. And recorded in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus ends his most brilliant sermon with a story. You remember that? A parable, we call it, but it's a story of two builders. And he contrasts a wise and foolish builder. You remember the difference? He points out that a person's life is like a builder, like a house. And there are two types of people in the world. Those who demonstrate faulty faith and those who demonstrate wise faith. Foolishness and wisdom. And Jesus says those who hear his word and obey it are wise builders. They have a wise faith. Those who hear Jesus' words and do not obey it are foolish. And their lives end up in destruction. Now I want you to hear in a non-parabolic genre how James enters into this idea. Because the whole book of James, before we drop into chapter 2, is framed with verse 22, chapter 1. James sets his whole book around this verse. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, in these words, we hear the echoing of the Sermon on the Mount. The danger for all of us, the perilous danger, is to have a faulty faith... And James is very compelling here, that all of us have the subtle danger of having belief devoid of behavior, of having profession devoid of practice. 
of having a faith that merely touches the head but does not transform the heart and the hands. And he frames it for us. And he does it in profound and provocative rhetoric. James is very intense, as you heard this text read. He says, is it possible that belief and behavior can be separated? This is the question in verses 14 to 26. Is it possible for us to have a faith that merely touches the head, but does not transform the heart and transform our hands? This is the question James raises with Jesus' words hovering over the text. Now, I'd like to address two perils that James addresses of foolish faith or faulty faith. This morning's message, I think this text unpacks this. And that is two perils that affect all of us. Dangerous, faulty faith. That all of us can find ourselves in the danger zone of a perilous faith in two areas. First, James will unpack the peril of a foolish faith. A faith that says it, but does not do it. It is saying it without doing it. Secondly, he will say, it is believing about something without believing in it. And this frames these verses. So let's unpack just a little bit these perils that affect all of us. You ready? In verses 14 through 17, I want to reread this again, what Pastor Claire read. And I want us to listen carefully again. What good is it, James says, my brothers, or you could say my sisters, it's both there. If someone says he has faith or she has faith but does not have works... Can that faith save him or save them? And then he goes, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, now notice the word says to them, go in peace, shalom. Be warm, be filled. Without giving them the things they need for their body, what good is that? So also faith itself. If it does not have works, is dead. James does not pull any punches here. He gives us this riveting and stark contrast. In the highest pitch of provocative rhetoric, he raises the question and then he expects an absolute no-way answer. And he elicits a no-way answer by giving us a ridiculous example. The example is of a destitute brother or sister who is not only deeply hungry, not just, you know, need their snicker bar like I need every day, but someone who has no food and someone who is exposed to the elements. Someone who has a crucial need at that moment to survive. That's the picture. James raises this ridiculous example by making the point to us that faith that we profess without practicing it It's not just faulty faith. It is not just faith faith light. It is dead faith. Now, that's very strong language. And James's rhetoric, his genre here, is very intense. He rests our attention. And he wants to arrest mine and yours this morning. So as we look at this text, there is an intuitive resonance that we make with it. We understand, and boy, this is true in a pastor's house... (laughs) Because pastors are supposed to really practice what they preach, right? You know what it's like when your children grow up in a pastor's home? Well, there's some good advantages, but you know, one of the things they constantly remind me, dad, practice what you preach. It's very humbling. 
Why is that? Because we intuitively know that faith, what we profess, is what we should practice. You ever had a teacher at school or a boss at work? Or someone that says to you now, or a parent, I know parents here would never do that to you kids, but don't do as I say, do as I do. And we know that there's something very wrong with that idea. And this is what James is unpacking. His readers were to go, no way, that's impossible. That's not faith. Eugene Peterson uh, just paraphrases this text beautifully. And uh, in the message, he says this. Listen to it carefully. He says, does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts, listen to this, is outrageous nonsense? Good language. So James is saying that to say it and not do it is outrageous nonsense. Very strong language. But James wants us to understand the danger of the religious deception of a foolish faith. One that professes it on Sunday, but one who doesn't live it on Monday. But now notice the second peril. It's a little more subtle, but it is very important to him, and James pulls out all the rhetoric stops. And that is believing about something or believing that something rather than believing in something. Now notice verses 18 through 19. Particularly, I'd like you to notice this text in verse 19. It says, you believe that God is one. Notice you profess it. You believe that God is one. And notice James says, hey, even the demons believe it. Good grief. That's the picture. Now this is a subtle one. But it's one of the most perils of faith we encounter. And that is the distinctive and deceptive idea of believing about something and not believing in it. Or believing about someone and not believing in them. Now, we don't usually think of the demonic world as having faith, do we? If I were to give you a true and false question, say, do the demons have faith? What would be your answer? Yes, they do. You know, we often think they don't, but the text here says, yes, they do. The demons believe about God. In fact, so much so that James uses an intense Greek word that they shudder at his reality. They see his power and greatness, but they don't believe in him. And he makes the distinction. To say that you and I have faith and not works... James says it's to buy into a foolish faith that we can believe about something and not believe in something. Or to believe about someone and not believe in them. Many of us spend time on airplanes these days. And I always am reminded that I can believe about an airplane well. I can believe that an airplane will get me to Chicago or get me home for Christmas or get me on a business trip. But I'm not really putting faith in an airplane. It's when I get on that baby and trust the pilot and the plane that I am believing in the plane and the people who fly it. See, we live with this kind of faith every day, don't we? A believing in faith rather than just a believing that. 
Some of us are pretty excited about the Chiefs. Um, and uh, early on, at least in the season, I still think there's hope, because I want you to know, early on, when they were undefeated, I, were here, I was hearing people say, they're going to go to the Super Bowl. You know, I have faith, and you say, well, they're going to go to the Super Bowl. And I began to hear about office pools, starting with good bets, and what Las Vegas was saying. And I don't know how you feel about them now. Maybe you're still believing the Chiefs. But it's one thing to say, I believe the Chiefs are going to go to the Super Bowl. Another thing to enter an office pool and lay your money down, right? It is believing in them, not believing about them. Another classic example is relationships. If you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or you're dating or whatever, you can believe about that person. You can believe a lot about them. You can know a lot about them. But it's not till you enter into a covenant of marriage that you place your faith in them. You believe in them. So James is making this important distinction of the danger, the perilous danger zone of believing about something or someone without believing in them. Now, so much so is this important to James that he highlights two Old Testament examples and then gives us an analogy to drive the point home. You'll notice in the following verses in 20 through 26, he will unpack Abraham and Rahab. Talk about two contrasting people in the Old Testament. Father Abraham and prostitute Rahab. Both encounter the grace of God. Both have transforming faith. I love that about this text. And notice that James is going to encourage us to say that true biblical faith, modeled by Abraham, modeled by Rahab, seen in the natural world of the living and dead physicality of our body, says that faith cannot just be of the mind, it has to be of the heart and the hands as well. That's his big point. Now, when we look at Abraham and Rahab, there's some thoughts that come to our mind, right? So what do their lives tell us? This text now is one of the most challenging texts, perhaps, of the Bible, if we just do a cursory view of it. But if we look at it carefully, we see how it sings in terms of truth. And what James is going to say, as he looks at Abraham and Rahab, and then looks at our own physical bodies, is that faith, like hands and glove, fit together. Now, you'll notice the most challenging part of this text is his illustration of Abraham. How many of us had a little bit of trouble if we've studied the Bible looking at the section of Scripture, right? It's hard sometimes to make sense of it. And notice that because of his rhetorical emphasis, James is giving thematic sequence, not historical sequence. This is why it's a bit confusing sometimes. You'll notice that James orders his rhetoric of Abraham offering Isaac on the altar, then Abraham is declared righteous, right? But the The listeners, the readers, would have known the Old Testament sequence. The Old Testament sequence of historicity is that Abraham is declared righteous before God by faith in Genesis 15, 6, first. Thirty years pass, right? And then in Genesis 22, he offers up in his faith Isaac as a sacrifice. So the thematic sequence and the historical sequence must be understood together to see that James is not saying that Abraham is meriting anything before God. He is saying that Abraham's faith, declared righteous by God, led to a transformational life that led to the action, the ultimate action of offering up Isaac. 
This is important for us to grasp. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, faith and works, works and faith, fit together hand in glove. This is what James is saying. Some of you are looking at the text and you're going, what about verse 24? I've I've been waiting for this one. Seems pretty obvious. The text says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So how do we handle that? How do we understand this in light of Paul's writings? Remember Paul, for example, wrote a lot about it is by grace through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Let me just read that. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, how about Paul and James? How are we to understand them? Are they contradictory or are they complementary? Those are important questions. And let me just suggest to you that they are compellingly complementary if we look at this text in its context and understand it at some level of depth. First of all, for those of you who are wrestling with this apparent struggle, <laughs> is that Paul and James uses the original language word that's translated justify in different ways. This is common in language. Same word used with a different nuance. And that is that <clears throat> James is combating a superficial faith, what I would like to call a faith that is only in the mind and not in the heart and the hands. Paul, on the other hand, is confronting a legalistic faith, a faith that says what we do earns us merit before God. We are saved by what we do. They are using it in different ways. Don Carson, who's a friend of Christ's community and a wonderful New Testament scholar at Trinity Seminary, says this. He says, Paul and James are facing very different problems. Paul is facing those who want to say that works, whether good or bad, make a fundamental contribution to whether one becomes a Christian. And Paul's answer is that they do not and cannot. God's grace, and again, hear hear Don carefully, hear me carefully, God's grace is received by faith in Jesus alone. James is facing those who argue that saving faith is found even in those who simply affirm intellectually that there is one God. And Dr. Carson emphasizes we need to understand the sequence of how these fit together. So again, listen carefully, Paul argues that works cannot help a person become a Christian, and James argues that good works must be displayed by the Christian. Both James and Paul agree. And the bottom line for James and Paul is this. While you and I are saved by faith in Christ alone, in his finished atoning work on the cross alone, faith never arrives alone. Faith always, if it's living true faith, leads to life and transformation. Life always has an evidence of its existence. And this is why James finishes this text with an illustration. And it's in verse 26. You notice where he goes. He says, the body apart from the spirit is dead. So also, faith apart from works is dead. If you've encountered a dead body, whether it's roadkill on the road or some other kind of body, you know right away that body's dead. You don't have to be a rocket science scientist. You don't have to have a PhD. Everyone can see when something's dead. 
And everyone can see when something's alive. And you can see it like that. That's James' point. Living faith, true gospel faith, makes itself known and it can be seen. That's where he goes with this text. So isn't it amazing that James ends this very strong rhetoric, this persuasive volley, with this analogy? That a dead corpse may be hard to fathom, but it is never hard to discern. Such is faith. Now the good news of the gospel, and let's hear it very carefully so we don't misunderstand this, the good news of the gospel is that it is by grace alone we are saved by faith alone. In Christ's finished work on the cross, the good news of the gospel also, though, reminds us that you and I can never stay the same if we truly believe. That the living faith of the gospel will change us. It will change our mind, our heart, and our hands. And I think this is such an important text for the Advent season. The Advent season causes us to reflect, to anticipate Christ's first coming and his second coming and what that means for us now. Not only in what we believe, but how we live in a seamless fabric of faithfulness. And the Advent season raises the question, I think, for all of us, do we have a foolish faith or do we have a wise faith? Do we have a dead faith or a living faith? I find it amazing that in the Advent stories, for example, Mary, Luke tells us that when angel, the angel Gabriel came to Mary and informed her of God's will for her life, she says this in Luke to Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done according to your will. Don't you love this about Mary? Mary didn't just have a profession of faith. Her whole life was committed to it. Faith, living faith, leads to bold action. Can you imagine facing the scorn of her community? The misunderstanding of Joseph. Yeah, you're pregnant. Right. Mary laid it all out in the line. Because living faith is not just the faith of the mind, but the heart and the hands. It is a holistic, transformational reality. This is what James is saying. The shepherds, the scruffy shepherds, we just love them in the story. <laughs> we sang a little bit about them this morning. Great song, by the way. Imagine the angels announcing to these scruffy shepherds near Bethlehem that the Messiah is born. And they go, oh yeah, okay, well, it's whatever. They, the text says, leave with haste. They drop everything to go to Bethlehem. Because true living faith does not just transform how we think, it transforms what our heart says and what our hands and feet do. This is the text. This is the challenge for us. It challenges me. As pastors can have a lot of faith in their mind. Often, it's not in our hearts and our hands. So for reflection this morning, what does this text mean for us? What is this truth that you and I can't stay the same if we believe? That living faith changes us from the inside out. What does it mean for us? Well, I want to raise two questions and press into this just a little bit with you, if you would. First is this. If our faith is dead or alive, we will think differently. And the question I have for all of us, including me this week, is am I thinking well about faith? Is my understanding of faith deceptive and distorted? 
Have I bought into a perilous and foolish faith that says to myself, well, I can believe it without doing it. Or I can believe about Jesus but not believe in him. Or a life that says, I can profess Jesus and sing songs on Sunday but not live for him at school on Monday in my workplace and at home and wherever God's called me. James has the heart of a loving pastor in Jerusalem. And he warns not only his parish, but the scattered believers, James says, of the peril of a faith that is only of one's head, but not head, heart and hands. German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote brilliantly about this. I don't know anyone apart from the Bible that has written better about this great deception and danger. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred by the Nazis for his commitment to the gospel and commitment to the church. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his most classic work, which I recommend to you, called The Cost of Discipleship, described the peril of the German church in the 20th century, which is the peril of the American church in the 21st century. And he described it as cheap grace. Cheap grace is not something we see in the gospel, but something we bestow on ourselves. It is grace without discipleship. It is saying, Jesus is my Savior, and he is not my Lord. James challenges us with that convenient but deadly compartmentalization in our life. One of the individuals that has profoundly shaped Christ's community for the last 25 years, who we just lost this year, a dear friend, wonderful professor of philosophy at USC, his name, Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard, when he was with us on several occasions, would continue to remind us of an important truth that we must not forget. He says, while grace is opposed to any kind of human merit, in other words, none of us can earn anything before a holy God that makes us right before him. While grace is opposed to human merit, it is not opposed to human effort. The properly understood, the grace of God accomplished through the gloriousness of the gospel leads to a grace that empowers us to discipline lives and to change lives into human effort. We must not miss that. The truth of the gospel properly understood is you and I cannot be the same if we truly have a living faith. Living faith in Jesus Christ and his glorious work on the cross and his glorious resurrection and his finished work means that we will not be the same if we embrace him as our Lord and Savior. A living gospel faith changes who we are, friends. It changes what we love. It changes how we love it. The way we live and what we do and why we do it, it will change our work. The gospel faith, the living faith James describes, not only changes how we think about faith, it changes how we think about work and works. And the question I have for us, are we working well? See, we often have a distorted understanding of faith in this text, but we also have a very myopic understanding of what James means by works. We read the book of James, particularly this section in chapter 2, and we hear works. And we often think of an Advent season dropping some money in the Salvation Army kettle. Or visiting someone at a hospital or tutoring someone, and these are wonderful God-honoring and important works. But that's not all that James is talking about. James is connecting Sunday to Monday here. He is calling us to live this life where we spend the majority of our time in our vocational places of service. We need to see that our good work, whether we are paid for it or not, 
whether it is done at school, in our home, or in office, is the primary way we do good works. You say, why? Well, doing good works, if we understand the whole story and what James is saying and the grammar of this text and the meaning of this text, is that doing good works is first and foremost doing good work. The word James employs here in the original language that is translated works is placed in the plural form of the word. And it is used in a seamless way to describe everyday work. One brilliant scholar says this. Listen to what he says. says, James is describing any kind of work from works of kindness, such as giving food to someone who is hungry, to on-the-job work, such as increasing the sustainable yield of a rice paddy. His use of the plural in the text shows he expects Christian work to be continuous. That means not only just acts that we do in certain ways to love others, but what we do every day in our vocations. So two questions, I think, flow from this. First of all, are we stewarding our vocations well? And secondly, are we caring for the vulnerable well? Both of these themes emerge. First, are you stewarding your vocation well? Are you doing good work? And is your good work that God has called you to and me to most of the time in my life, is that good works? This means stewarding our vocation, our vocational resources, our influence, our power, whether we are a stay-at-home mom or a teacher or a mental health professional or a medical professional or a business person or a student. The gospel faith transforms every nook and cranny of our life every day. So what work has God called you to do? And are you doing good works first in your work? Where has God called you to contribute to the common good? And how are you working in your work for the benefit of others? We often miss this in this text. We need to grasp that stewarding our vocations makes it possible to love our neighbors well. Do you notice that James highlights the great commandment his brother taught earlier in chapter 2? What does neighborly love look like? What does neighborly love demand? And Jesus gives us the brilliant story of the Good Samaritan. Most of us who have read the Bible know that story. A man is wounded by the road. Two religious Jewish leaders walk by, but a Samaritan stops. The Samaritan crosses racial and all kinds of ethnic prejudices. And he binds up the wounds of the man and he takes him to an inn and he pays money to the innkeeper to take care of him. This story was a response to the question, who is my neighbor? And most of us grasp the fact that this good Samaritan had Christ-like compassion. But we miss that he had capacity. Loving our neighbor Doing good work and good works means we have the capacity to care for the needy. And that means that we have lifestyles of margin of time, talent, and treasure so that we can have the capacity to care for the vulnerable. We often miss this. So the question in this text is, how do we steward the work God has called us to do, wherever we are? And following that is, how do we care for the vulnerable? So let me just challenge us with that a little bit, and then I'll wrap it up. 
You'll notice in verse 27 that James reminds us to visit the orphans and widows. That was the group in the first century that were the most vulnerable in society. To have a special sensitivity to the vulnerable in society. There was no safety net. What James is saying is that gospel faith cares for the most vulnerable in society. So who are the widows and orphans, the most vulnerable in our city? They may be the widow, an elderly widow. They may be an orphan. They may be the unborn. They may be an immigrant. They may be a child in foster care. They may be the addicted, the homeless, the trafficked, the single parent, the mentally ill, the chronically unemployed, the underemployed, the illiterate, the fatherless, and we could go on and on. When Andy Crouch was here, he reminded us in our conference that one of the ways we know that we are seeking the common good and the city is flourishing when the most vulnerable among us are flourishing. So James challenges us to care for the vulnerable. Let me raise four questions for your thought. First, do we truly know who the vulnerable in our city are? Or are we insulated and isolated from them? Secondly, Do we see the truly vulnerable in our city as God sees them? That they are precious image bearers with extraordinary value. Third, do we see ourselves as broken and poor? Regardless of our financial status, that God's gracious mercy and provision has been given to us every day. That an immensely wealthy God emptied himself and became poor for us and died for us. Fourth, How may God be leading us, you and me, individually and as a church context, to invest our time, talent, and treasure in caring for the vulnerable? This morning, our pastor of Extension Ministry, Jeanette Thomas, is here. You might have a conversation with her about how can you join with what we are doing as a church in caring for the needy and vulnerable. This week, we lost a towering figure in the globe. Nelson Mandela's story is stunning. 27 years in prison to oppose the most egregious evil of racism in South Africa. I don't know his faith journey. Reading him of his biographies, he grew up in a Methodist home. I don't know his faith. But I do know this. His forgiveness and reconciliation and life show that whatever he believed transformed into his life. My favorite quote of Nelson Mandela is this. A good head and a good heart are always a formidable combination. And that's what James says. James reminds us that living faith changes us. It transforms our head and our heart. And the question for each one of us this morning is not whether we have faith, question James challenges you and me on this day, in this Advent season, is what kind of faith we live by. Let's pray. Father, James' words are hard to hear, but necessary. So, Lord Jesus, as we gather now and continue our worship, may we embrace a living faith for your glory and for the good of this broken planet. In Jesus' name.